Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello sports fans, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and most importantly, Happy New Year from our podcast studios here in suburban Atlanta. This is your host, Dana Augusta, and welcome and welcome back to this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. This will be our final podcast episode for this year of 2022, and once again, we'll be taking the trip down sports memory lane. I'm grateful to have you on and taking time out of your busy day to give us a listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. In this episode, we're going to take a trip back to December of 1982. I was nine years old at the time. And in the days leading up to Christmas and New Year's, I was first exposed to college football bowl season. That bowl season was my first experience of college bowl games, which led up to the Sugar Bowl. That year, the game down in New Orleans was between number one Georgia and number two Penn State for the national championship. We're going to take a quick look at the 1982 bowl season, which featured a pair of future Heisman winners matching up in a bowl game and a legendary coach leading his team on the field for one final time. That is our main event. And later in the show, we're going to send a shout out to a bowl game that was a major bowl for its time, but no longer exists. And also our home field apparel top five featuring the five biggest sports stories of 2022. So sit back, pump up the volume. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football, Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s, Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday's Sports, Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories, and Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today. Hello and welcome to this episode's main event. 
This is the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Dana Augusta. Now, just a reminder out there, if you like what you hear here, please hit the subscribe button wherever you get this program. And also, please tell your friends about us. I would really appreciate it. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2, or you could also email us at Historically.Speaking.Sports at gmail.com. Now, our main event today, we will hit the Wayback Machine to December of 1982. And to give you a little bit of the climate of sports, of the sports were going on at the time, the NFL had just endured a strike that canceled part of the season that year, and football fans were somewhat lukewarm to pro football at the time. Meanwhile, yours truly was nine years old and just beginning my sports fandom. Now, I knew college football was a thing, but I never really watched it like talking about it. But this year was going to be different since pro football had went through a strike and it seemed that something about the NFL was kind of different, at least for that year. I was going to take my first look at college football, which my grandfather, the chief sports fan of my household, was a huge fan of. Now, to put things in perspective, college football was very different back then. So for starters, there was nowhere near as many bowl games as there are now. In 1982, there was only 16 bowl games as opposed to 43 games this season. Also in 1982, there were no playoffs to speak of. The fact that Georgia and Penn State playing each other in the Sugar Bowl in a matchup between number one and number two for the national championship was a novelty. Usually, teams would be voted national champions between the Associated Press and United Press International Polls. That was the way things were done in the early 1980s. It was confusing times to say the least. This would be the only the sixth time ever that number one and number two would face each other in a bowl game with a national championship on the line. Yet before we got to the night of January 1st, there were 15 other bowl games that took place that year. Some still around and they become traditional while others have been either renamed or just outright disappeared. The game that kicked off the bowl season that year was the 1982 Independence Bowl in Shreveport on December 11th. Now that game was played in freezing rain and 30 mile per hour winds, which is typical weather in Shreveport, but it was also very historic. That game, which featured Kansas State taking on Wisconsin, was the first college football game ever broadcast live by ESPN. Most of the non-New Year's Day bowl games back then was broadcast by independent sports networks such as Mizzaloo Television Network, which I grew up on, a sports network that was actually based out of Tampa, Florida. ESPN, in conjunction with Mizzaloo, broadcast a game that featured broadcasters Howard David and Danny Abramowitz. Kansas scored a field goal in the second quarter to open the scoring, then Wisconsin scored a pair of touchdowns, and the highlight of the game came as Randy Wright, the game MVP, connected with Tim Straka on an 87-yard touchdown pass to put the game away for the Badgers. On the next night, uh, actually a few nights later, on uh, December 17th, was the Holiday Bowl in San Diego. Number 17, Ohio State, took on BYU, who was a regular at the Holiday Bowl in those early years. Ohio State would win the game 47-14, but the game featured a pair of future NFL quarterbacks. Ohio State was led by quarterback Mike Tomczak, while BYU countered with future Hall of Famer Steve Young. But it was the ground game that proved effective. 
The Buckeyes gained 329 yards rushing, led by game MVP Tim Spencer, who highlighted the game with a 61-yard touchdown run in the second quarter. Yet not to be outdone, Cougars quarterback Steve Young passed for 352 yards in a losing effort. On the next night, December 18th, was the Tangerine Bowl in Orlando, Florida. It featured Auburn and Boston College. Auburn would eventually win the game 33-26 in one of the more exciting bowl games that year. But it was also a matchup between two future Heisman winners. It was a matchup between Bo Jackson, the running back from Auburn, and quarterback of Boston College, Doug Flutie. Incidentally, it would be the last time this game was going to be called the Tangerine Bowl. It would change its name to the more familiar Florida Citrus Bowl the very next season. Auburn quarterback Randy Campbell was the game's most valuable player. Auburn led the game 27 to 10 at the at half, but Doug Flutie led the Eagles back, scoring 16 points in the final quarter. But it wasn't enough as Auburn won 33 to 26. Yet earlier that day, out west was the California Bowl in Fresno. Fresno State, led by quarterback Jim. Uh, Vince, uh, Jeff Tedford, who would eventually become the head coach at Fresno State, took on Bowling Green. Notable players along with Jeff Tedford was Fresno State wide receiver Stephon Page, who would later go on and play, be an all-pro with the Kansas City Chiefs. The Bulldogs had trailed by 21 points twice in the game, but the combination of Tedford to Page rallied the Bulldogs who were playing this game at their home field. Yet with 11 seconds remaining, and the Bulldogs trailing 28-22, this happened. Bedford will throw, straight drop back, touchdown to Wesson! Oh, the people are going crazy. What a comeback. Vince Wesson, the silent gun in the lineup for Fresno State, while Page stole the headlines, Wesson steals the game. It's tied at 28. They still have to make the conversion with 11 seconds left. Tedford found Vince Wesson for a two-yard touchdown pass to give Fresno State the win because they added a conversion at the end. Tedford would actually pass for 373 yards and three touchdowns in the win, while Stephon Page had 15 receptions for 246 yards in the victory. On Christmas Day was the Sun Bowl played in El Paso, Texas, and that saw North Carolina Tar Heels defeat the Texas Longhorns 26-10. The game was broadcast as traditionally on CBS with Gary Bender and Pat Hayden calling the shots. Texas opened the scoring with a blocked punt and a recovery in the end zone by Ronnie Mullins. A USC, UNC countered with a field goal by Raul Alegre, who would later win a Super Bowl with the New York Giants. The turning point of the game, however, was a Tar Heel goal line stand in the third quarter, which sparked North Carolina with 26 consecutive points in the game to claim the 1982 Sun Bowl in El Paso 26-10. The Tar Heels racked up 224 yards on the ground in the victory. Also taking place on Christmas Day was the 1982 Aloha Bowl in Honolulu. And that one was another exciting matchup between the Washington Huskies and the Maryland Terrapins. It was the first annual Aloha Bowl and it was the first bowl game to take place in Hawaii since the Pineapple Bowl of 1952. The game broadcasting the game was ESPN by legendary 
play-by-play man Harry Callis and former NFL quarterback Joe Cap. Washington led by head, was led by head coach Don James while Maryland countered with head coach Bobby Ross. Maryland was paced at on offensively by future Cincinnati Bengals quarterback uh, Norman Boomer Esiason. But the game came down to the final seconds with Maryland holding a 20-14 lead. Washington quarterback Tim Cowan drove the Huskies to the Terrapin 11-yard line. Nelson would hit the extra point and Washington would escape Honolulu with a 21-20 win over Maryland. Boomer Esiason would finish with 252 yards and two touchdowns with one interception while Cowan would go 33-55 of 55 for 369 yards and three touchdowns. On December 29, 1982 was the 1982 Liberty Bowl which featured the University of Alabama against University of Illinois. Alabama will win the game 21-15, but despite Alabama's defensive back Jeremiah Castillo winning game MVP, an Illinois quarterback and future New England Patriots signal caller Tony Eason passing for 423 yards and being picked seven times, the game will always be remembered for this moment. Once again, Harry Callis and Joe Cap. history Paul Bear Bryant goes out a winner in his final game 21 to 15 Alabama the winningest coach of all time collegiate Amos Alonzo Stagg Pop Warner Eddie Robinson on the shoulders of his team boy what a man Bear Bryant Think of the lies that he has affected. All of the young men that have gone through the program at Alabama and how much Paul Bear Bryant has meant to them, their careers, their lives. Moving on now to December 30th and the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, Florida, where the Florida State Seminoles defeated the West Virginia Mountaineers 31 to 12. The Mountaineers was led by head coach Don Nealon, while the Seminoles came to town by legendary coach Bobby Bowden. ABC broadcast the Gator Bowl as they normally did back then, but calling the game was Al Michaels and Lee Gross Cup. And the highlight of the game came in the second quarter. After a Paul Woodside field goal by West Virginia, Greg Allen returned the ensuing kickoff 95 yards for a touchdown. Allen's three touchdowns and 138 yards rushing earned him game MVP honors for Florida State. Moving on to New Year's Eve 
And there was a triple header of football on television right before everyone turned in to watch Dick Clark watch the ball drop at Times Square. The first game was the Peach Bowl in Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium, where Iowa, led by quarterback Chuck Long, defeated Tennessee 28-22. It was the first ever meeting between the Hawkeyes and Volunteers, and the Iowa Hawkeyes, along with quarterback Chuck Long, was also led offensively by running back Ronnie Harmon. Tennessee had a pair of NFL standouts on their own for their own right, which included place kicker Farad Rivez, who would kick a lot of field goals for the Minnesota Vikings in the mid to late 80s, and wide receiver Willie Gold, who would eventually win a Super Bowl ring with the Chicago Bears. Long led the Hawkeyes to a 28-22 win by going 19-26 of for 304 yards and three touchdowns. Next on the docket that afternoon was the Hall of Fame Classic in Birmingham. It was the 6th annual Hall of Fame Classic which would eventually change its name to the All-American Bowl a few years later. In that game, Air Force knocked off Vanderbilt 36-28. The Falcons at one point was, laid, was trailing 28-17 heading into the 4th quarter then turned the tables on the Commodore scoring 19 straight points to claim the 8 point win. Yet despite the loss, Vanderbilt quarterback Whit Taylor was named the game's most valuable player. And that night was the Astro Blue Bonnet Bowl in Houston, where the Arkansas Razorbacks knocked off Florida 28-24 in the Astrodome. Arkansas was coached by future Notre Dame coach Lou Holtz, while Florida was coached by Charlie Pell. Arkansas scored first, when the Gators, then the Gators would score 17 unanswered to, to give the lead 17-7 at the half. In the second half, Arkansas would rally, led by running back and game most valuable player Gary Anderson. Arkansas would score two touchdowns in the final quarter to earn the Razorbacks a 28-24 win in the Astro Blue Bonnet Bowl. Now moving on to New Year's Day. After everyone watched the Rose Parade and the Cotton Bowl Parade on television, all eyes were glued to the myriad of bowl games on this afternoon, which led into the climactic battle for the national title that night. The first game was the Cotton Bowl Classic in Dallas, which would have been, which is a great appetizer to say the least. SMU, led by running back Eric Dickerson, and Pitt, led by quarterback Dan Marino, came into the Cotton Bowl under rainy and wet and cold conditions that were typical for a game in Dallas on New Year's Day. The game was on CBS with Lindsey Nelson and Pat Hayden. And it, this, this, and it was a defensive struggle. With all that offensive firepower, it ended up being a 7-3 win for SMU. Even though both teams racked up 622 yards of total offense between them, neither found the scoreboard often. It was the first time how it was the first time actually in Cotton Bowl history that the game was scoreless heading into halftime. The Panthers' only points came on a 43-yard field goal in the third quarter. And on the next SMU possession, the Mustangs quarterback Lance McElhenney scored on a 9-yard touchdown run, which was the only touchdown of the game. However, the game came down to Pitt's final possession as Marino and the Panthers drove to the SMU 7. Yet Marino on third and goal passed the ball into the end zone and Wes Hopkins tipped the ball and Blaine Smith intercepted the pass which ended the game. Going on 
At the same time, in Tempe, Arizona, was the Fiesta Bowl, which featured Arizona State taking on Oklahoma. On NBC, the game was broadcast with Charlie Jones and Lynn Dawson calling the action. Arizona, a four-point underdog, actually defeated Oklahoma 32-21. Marcus Dupree was named the offensive most valuable player for the Sooners, while Jim Jeffcoat was named defensive MVP for Arizona State. Dupree had 239 yards rushing, but the key player of the game was Sun Devils quarterback Todd Hines, who passed for 329 yards in the game, hit Ron Brown, later with the Rams, for a 52-yard touchdown pass to put the game away. Coming on right after the Fiesta Bowl in Tempe was the granddaddy of them all, the Rose Bowl. And that's, that year, it was UCLA taking on Michigan. UCLA would eventually win the game 24-14. Broadcasting the game, of course, was on NBC, Dick Enberg, and Merlin Olsen. And that afternoon, Merlin Olsen actually had double duty because he was also the Grand Marshal of the Rose Parade because he starred in television shows and most famously, he was this pitch man for, the, for FTD Flores. That year, it was the first year that the Bruins played in the Rose Bowl as a home stadium. So they really didn't have to go far to play the Rose Bowl, taking on a vaunted Michigan Wolverines football team. The Bruins were led by quarterback Tom Ramsey, who was the game's most valuable player. UCLA took a 10-0 lead in the second quarter and knocked Michigan starting quarterback Steve Smith out of the game with a separated shoulder. The Bruins would score two more touchdowns in the second half to put the game out of reach for Coach Terry Donahue's Bruins. Heading into that night on NBC's triple header was the Orange Bowl that saw Nebraska edge LSU 21-20. Overall, this was perhaps the weirdest game of all the bowl games in 1982-83. First of all, it was the lowest attended Orange Bowl in 36 years and one of the lowest television ratings ever. One reason? It was played at the same time as the Sugar Bowl that determined the national champion. The second reason? Ongoing civil unrest in the Overtown neighborhood in Miami near the Orange Bowl contributed to the low attendance. Only 54,000 showed up. Nebraska quarterback Turner Gill was named MVP as the Huskers won 21-20 in a game that saw Nebraska turn the ball over six times. LSU was paced by running back and Patterson, Louisiana native Dalton Hilliard, who scored twice in a losing effort. And finally, the game that determined the national champion. The Sugar Bowl that featured the Georgia Bulldogs and the Penn State and Indian Lions in the Louisiana Superdome. The game on NBC, the game was on ABC, and calling the game, of course, with Keith Jackson and Frank Broyles. ABC Sports presents the 1983 Sugar Bowl, live from the Superdome in New Orleans, Louisiana. The number one ranked Georgia Bulldogs against number two Penn State Nittany Lions. A Superdome in New Orleans. Absolute ultimate capacity as number two ranked Penn State, the Nittany Lions in white, come onto the playing surface. had 
12,500 tickets that could have sold 100. And here come the undefeated Bulldogs of Georgia. sell this one it's just put it on the tee and I guess the old southern expression is sick them Frank Keith uh, when you're playing for the biggest prize in college football the worst thing that you could have happen is your team be up tight these coaches hadn't been leading cheers about how important it is to win on the other hand they've taken the low-key approach having their team emphasize be prepared don't make any mistakes when they walk off that field be confident they played their very best and then they end up by saying usually the score will take care of itself Penn State came into the game as four-point favorites, and the number two ranked team led by coach Joe Paterno and quarterback Ty Blackledge and running back Kurt Warner. Yet the top-ranked Georgia Bulldogs led by head coach Vince Dooley had the best college player in the country, Heisman Trophy winner Herschel Walker. Both teams scored on their first possession of the game, and Penn State running back Kurt Warner scored on a two-yard touchdown run and the Nittany Lions led 7-0. He finished the game with 117 yards rushing. Meanwhile, Georgia on their first possession got on the board with a 27-yard field goal by Kevin Butler to make it 7-3. After a pair of Penn State field goals, Warner would score again, this time from 9 yards out to give the Nittany Lions a 20-3 lead. Yet right before the half, Bulldog quarterback John Lassinger found Herman Archie on a 10-yard touchdown pass to give the Bulldogs a 20 give the Bulldogs a chance to cut into the lead at 20-10 at the half. In the third quarter, Georgia cut into the Penn State lead even further as Herschel Walker scored on a one-yard touchdown run to make the score 20-17. Now Penn State would put the game away in the fourth as Ty Blackledge found wide receiver Greg Garrity. Warner now, 15 carries on 101 yards, two touchdowns, first down Penn State, Georgia 48. Lions have got a drive going here, a time-consuming effort, too. But now Blackledge is going to put it up on first down. He's going for the bundle. Garrity! Touchdown! The 47-yard touchdown pass on the far sideline extended Penn State's lead to 27-17. Georgia would score late in the game to close the gap to 27-23, but Penn State would eventually run out the clock to claim the 1982 national title. As a 9-year-old, this was the best three weeks of sports I had ever witnessed, and this was my entree into sports fandom, especially the hype of the Sugar Bowl where Penn State would crown national champs. To me, this was the best of times. Watching college football while on Christmas break from school was the best. Now every now and then I think back to those times when I'm watching the Camellia Bowl or the Forces Bowl or God forbid the Cheez-It Bowl. Life was more, much more simpler and in some cases better. Coming up, we're going to be sending a shout out to a bowl game that was one of the most popular during the 1970s and 80s, which was named for the state flower of Texas. And one of the first bowl games I remember watching as a kid. But coming up next is our top five 
as we will count down the five biggest sports moments from the past year. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com. All right, and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports podcast, where we focus on the best of sports from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there, you can follow us on Twitter at historically. SP2, or you can get your daily dose where you can get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, I should say you should also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. So right now it is time for the Home Field Apparel Top Five. Home Field Apparel is the sponsor of our top fives, which we do almost every episode. Now today we're counting down the five biggest sports events and moments that made the calendar year of 2022 so special and so memorable. And it's being brought to you by Home Field Apparel. The college football season is in full swing and is the beginning to wind down with just a few more bowl games left to go. And the best way to show off your school spirit and fandom is to wear a shirt or hoodie from Home Field Apparel. They have a wide range of styles for your favorite team with, with, with what I call old school logos, not only to make you stand out in the crowd, but also show that you are a true fan. They have shirts that represent close to 200 schools and adding more and more every day. And on the website, you can hit the rewards button located at the bottom of the screen to get 20% off of your next purchase. So give Home Field Apparel a try as you watch your team in their bowl game. That is Home Field Apparel where they study your school's history, traditions, and legacies to create thoughtful premium apparel. A must-have for your next tailgate. Home Field Apparel, where they are fond of saying, wear one for the team. Now, this week's countdown will highlight events that made the year of 2022 so memorable. There are a lot of things that happened that didn't really make the list. The retirements of Serena Williams and Roger Federer. The retirement and then unretirement of Tom Brady. Aaron Judge breaking the Yankees and the American League single season home run record. All of those things were so memorable, but this top five are five events that will forever be linked to the year of 2022. So without further delay, here is the Home Field Apparel Top 5. Number 5. The Golden State Warriors climb back to the top and wins the NBA championship. On paper, this had to be this had the potential to be one of the most competitive NBA finals in recent years. In one corner, you had the Golden State Warriors, who is returning to the finals for the first time since 2019, making it the sixth time in the last eight seasons. They had defeated the Dallas Mavericks in five games to return to the NBA Finals. Their opponents from the East would be the Boston Celtics, making their first finals appearance since 2010 when they lost to the Kobe Bryant-led Lakers in 2010. Boston outlasted Jimmy Butler and the Miami Heat to reach the NBA Finals for the 22nd time in franchise history. The Warriors and Celtics will meet in the NBA Finals for just the second time, with the first being way back in 1964. Both teams will split the first two games in San Francisco with Boston winning Game 1 and Golden State claiming Game 2. 
Boston would take a two games to one lead in the series, beating the Warriors 116 to 110 in Boston in game three. Yet the Warriors, led by finals MVP Steph Curry, his first finals MVP award by the way, would lead the Warriors to three straight victories including a game six 13 point win in Boston for their sixth NBA championship in team history. Number four, Dusty finally gets him one. There are managers that are beloved not only by their players but also by baseball fans around the country. And then there's Johnny Baker Jr., known as Dusty Baker. Heading into the World Series, Dusty Baker, now managing the World Series bound Houston Astros, had more major league wins than any other manager that had never won the series. The Astros, back in the World Series for only was back in the World Series, and not only were they looking to win another world championship, they were looking to do something else. They won the series in 2017 amid a sign-stealing controversy that was uncovered in the following offseason. And the Astros hoped that winning the series this year would sort of maybe legitimize their world championship. Their opponents in the series this year were the Philadelphia Phillies, who was in the Fall Classic for the first time since 2009. While the Astros strolled their way to the series, the Phillies' run was actually more improbable. They had swept the favorite St. Louis Cardinals in the Wild Card Series after making the postseason on the third to last day of the Major League Baseball regular season. In the National League Wild Card Series, in the Divisional Series, the Phillies defeated the defending World Series champion Atlanta Braves in four games to advance to the National League Championship Series to take on the San Diego Padres in their first appearance since 1998. The Phillies behind National League Championship Series MVP Bryce Harper, they defeated the upstart Padres in five games to face the Astros in the Fall Classic. In the series, the Phillies won Game 1 6-5, and, but the Astros would win the series, would win series game number 2 with a 5-2 win as the series shifted back to Philadelphia for games 3, 4, and 5. After rare World Series game postponement because of rain, the Phillies won Game 3 7-0, yet the Astros would come back in Game 4, winning 5-0 in the first combined no-hitter in World Series history. With the series tied two games apiece, Houston would claim a 3-2 win in Game 5, and with the Astros and Dusty Baker just one win away from claiming the 2002 Fall Classic, the series shifted back to Minute Maid Park for the final two games of the series. Only one game was needed as the Astros shortstop Jeremy Pena gave the city of Houston their second World Series title but also gave manager Dusty Baker his long-awaited World Series title. Number 3. March Madness. The Peacocks destroy brackets, Coach K says goodbye, and Kansas rallies to a title. This year's NCAA tournament lived up to the term March Madness once again as it was wild and unpredictable as ever before. One thing that is predictable is that there will be a team that comes out of literal nowhere and capture, both, capture the imagination of basketball fans across the country and simultaneously destroy brackets along the way. That one team in the tournament in, 2000, in 2022 was the St. Peter's Peacocks who, as a 15 seed, upset tournament heavyweight Kentucky on the first full day of the tournament. St. Peter's was not done. After beating Murray State and upending Purdue, the Precox became the first 15 seed to reach the Elite Eight where their journey came to an end when it lost to North Carolina. Another headline that came out of the tournament was the retirement of Duke head basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski. After 42 seasons, Coach K led the Blue Devils once again to the Final Four. 
where his team lost to longtime and bitter rival North Carolina in New Orleans, 81 to 77. Coach K, the winningest coach in basketball history, finished his career with startling numbers. He finished with 1,202 wins, 15 ACC tournament championships, and five NCAA titles along with Coach of the Year three times. All rose to the Final Four once again led to New Orleans, where the national championship game, where in the national championship game, Kansas, led by coach Bill Self, won the national title for the second time and the school's fourth. The win was historic. The Jayhawks erased a 16-point North Carolina lead, which was the largest comeback in championship game history. Number two, the NFL Divisional Playoffs, 13 seconds of madness. ESPN football analyst Chris Berman once said that the NFL division around the playoffs is the best NFL weekend of the season, and the 2022 edition may be the best ever. The four divisional games included the Cincinnati Bengals beating the Tennessee Titans 19-16, the 49ers upsetting the Green Bay Packers in snowy Lambeau Field 13-10, the Rams holding on to beat Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 30-27 and perhaps one of the craziest endings of any postseason game. The Kansas City Chiefs defeated the Buffalo Bills 42-36 in overtime at Arrowhead Stadium. In the four games, the winning team outscored the losing team by a combined 15 points. It was by far the most competitive division around in history. The Buffalo-Kansas City game was the most competitive and the most profound. At the end of the wild fourth quarter, which both teams combined for 25 points in the final two minutes, Kansas City drove 44 yards in 10 seconds, at the in 10 seconds, and to tie the game at the end of regulation. Harrison Butker's 49-yard field goal as time expired. With the winning after winning the coin toss, the Chiefs drove 75 yards or nine plays of overtime for the game-winning touchdown. The Chiefs would eventually lose in the next round to the Super Bowl-bound Cincinnati Bengals, who would eventually lose themselves to the Rams in an exciting 23-20 game in Los Angeles. The Rams, in winning their second Super Bowl in franchise history, became the second consecutive champion to win the Super Bowl on their home field. And now the number one sports moment of 2022, Argentina defeats France in the greatest World Cup final ever ever. The game had all the makings of an epic. Two of the best soccer players on the planet would face off for the most sought after trophy in the world. On Sunday, December 18th, Argentina, led by Lionel Messi, took on the defending World Cup champion France, led by Kylian Mbappe. This, would, this World Cup climax overshadowed the controversial choice to have the World Cup in Qatar because of the climate, harsh treatment of migrant workers, and women and members of the LGBT community. All of that was put aside in the championship game that was won for the ages. Early goals by Lionel Messi and Angel Di Maria gave Argentina a 2-0 lead. Despite multiple substitutions in the first half, France did not record a shot until the 70th minute, but were energized by additional substitutions in the 71st. A few minutes later, France was awarded a penalty shot as Randocolo Munani was brought down in the penalty area. Mbappe scored, scored the penalty and added a second goal less than two minutes later to tie the score at two apiece. With the score tied at the end of regulation, the match went to extra time. 
Messi scored his second goal on the 108th minute, once again giving Argentina the lead. However, Mbappe was awarded a second penalty shot in the 115th minute after his shot hit the arm of Gonzalo Montiel, scoring his third goal, becoming the second player ever to complete a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup after Jeff Hurst for England in 1966. With the score tied at three, the match was determined via penalty shootout. Argentina won the final after scoring all of their penalties, winning 4-2. This marked their third World Cup win in their first since 1986. It also marked the first time that the South American team won the World Cup in 20 years. There were a lot of great moments of the sports year 2022, but the dramatic World Cup final was set to hear apart from all others. And that was this episode's top five. And coming up next is this episode's shout out. And in this episode, we're going to be sending a shout out to a bowl game, which was a bowl game that had big plans for itself when it was first proposed in the late 1950s. It was a traditional bowl game whose height during the 60s and 70s, but by the 80s, it had dropped out of sight mainly because of lack of sponsorship. Details after this, and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, You can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, and we're going to close out this episode, the final episode of 2022, with what we call the shout out. And this episode, we're going to be sending a shout out to a bowl game that I watched almost religiously every year because it was so close to where I grew up. As some of you know, I'm from a small town in South Louisiana, and which is just two hours east of Houston. Now, currently, Houston is the host city of the Texas Bowl, whose lead sponsor escapes me at the moment, but Houston was also the location of the former Blue Bonnet Bowl. I once told my 17-year-old son that I used to watch the Blue Bonnet Bowl on television when I was growing up. His reply stunned me. He asked, they actually named the bowl game after a brand of butter? 
After looking at him for a few seconds and trying to figure out how in the world is he graduating from high school in a couple of months, I said, no, Landon, it is named for the Texas state flower. It is one of the long list of traditional bowl games that existed before bowl week became bowl couple of months. Other bowl games that had existed during that time that I remember was the Cherry Bowl in Detroit, the aforementioned California Bowl in Fresno, the Tangerine Bowl in Orlando, now named the Florida Citrus Bowl, and the Hall of Fame Classic in Birmingham, which later became the now defunct All-American Bowl. The Blue Bonnet Bowl was on that list. The first Blue Bonnet Bowl was played at Rice Stadium in Houston in 1959, where it saw the number 11 ranked Clemson Tigers defeat number 7 TCU 23-7. The game was organized by a civic group that was appointed by the Houston Chamber of Commerce Athletics Committee. Houston was a growing city in the late 1950s and it was anxious to dip their toe into sports. The Houston Oilers of the new American Football League was on the horizon and also just a couple of years away from Major League Baseball placing a team there. Their hope was to have an annual bowl game that would be on the same level as the Cotton Bowl Classic in Dallas and the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans, two prominent cities in relative proximity to Houston. From 1959 through 1967 and then again in 1985 and 86, the game would be played at Rice Stadium. Yet from 1968 through 1984 and for the last game in 1987, the game would be played at the Houston Astrodome, hence altering its name to the Astro Blue Bonnet Bowl. They wanted to have at least one Texas-based team to play in the bowl game to take on a team from out of state. And of the 29 Blue Bonnet Bowls that were played, 19 featured a team from the state of Texas. The Texas Longhorns made the most appearances in the Blue Bonnet Bowl with six, including the final Blue Bonnet Bowl which took place on New Year's Eve of 1987, when the Longhorns defeated the number 19 ranked Pitt Panthers 32-27 in front of only 23,000 fans when the game previously was averaging well over 45,000. Terrible ticket sales and lack of major sponsor was the death knell for the Blue Bonnet Bowl, but for the city of Houston and the young sports fan that it made a huge impact. Thank you guys for listening, and as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get new episodes when they're released. And please check us out on Twitter at HistoricallySP2, where you could get your daily dose of sports history, and also drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And until next time, fans, I'll talk to you soon. I'm Dana Guster, saying that I'll try to do better next time, Coach. Everybody out there, have a happy, blessed, and safe, and prosperous new year. See you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football 
through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians, you'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.